I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History of England. Today I have a treat for you, and I'm very happy to say that I am joined by Nicola Tallis. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Nicola. So Nicola is an author of a book that I used constantly throughout the episodes. And I have to say, I loved your book. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it just to get my compliments in early, obviously. I enjoyed it because you did a really good job of making the atmosphere live, of giving a really good idea of exactly what happened, who was doing what, of making the characters live again. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's very nice to hear. Did you enjoy researching it? I had a great time researching it. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. It took me to some unexpected places and um I I learned a lot more about Jane than what I was expecting to. So it was a brilliant experience. So on the way did you go to Bradgate Park? I did. I went to Bradgate Park. Um I've actually spoken at Bradgate Park oh, on two occasions now. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough actually to be there earlier this year to deliver a eulogy for Lady Jane Grey um, at the remem- remembrance service that Bradgate Park run for her oh. every year. Um, so I did spend some time there researching, which was a real privilege. And it was great to be somewhere that is that was such an integral part of Jane's life and where much of her early life was shaped where do they hold their remembrance service that is held in the chapel the ruined chapel um within the ruins of bradgate park gosh how lovely about that's fantastic it's a beautiful beautiful park isn't it it is it's absolutely stunning and you know the great thing about bradgate park as well is that the landscape is so largely unchanged since jane's time so many of the views would have been familiar to her too. Yes, that's amazing, isn't it? Such a beautiful deer park, such a good example of a deer park from the Tudor period. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. It really does transport you back in time, I think. And um, it is a very, very beautiful place. The only thing, of course, there's, a bit, there's an upturned beer tankard on a hill, isn't it? Which presumably wouldn't have been there when Jane Grey was there and presumably she would have got rid of if there had been. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So what was it that um, drew you to writing about Jane specifically? 
Um, well, actually, initially, I began researching and writing about her mother, Lady Frances Brandon. Oh, yeah. And um, I did, I wrote, I wrote a first draft of a book and um, I showed it to my agent and he'd said, you know, this is really great, but I wonder if it's worth actually going back and having a look at Jane. And um, initially, I was sort of slightly hesitant because mm. I felt that, you know, we probably we probably knew everything that there was to know about her and there wasn't much more to be said. But actually, I was very pleasantly surprised to discover that, you know, when I actually did go back to the archives and look at the original sources, that there was more to be said about her and more of her character to be drawn out. Interesting, before we go on with that, I'm interested that you wrote about Frances first because she was rather strange that she was written out of Henry's will. What was going on there, do you think? Yeah, I mean, she, as you say, she was written out of the will and the reason has never been satisfactorily established. But for my own part, I personally believe that it was probably um, had something to do with Francis's husband, Jane's father, Mm. Henry Gray, because we know that Henry VIII didn't have a great deal of time for him. Um, he was, I mean, basically, not many of his contemporaries had a good word to say right. about Henry Gray. And um, we know that he, he'd he been nominated um, for to join the Order of the Garter on several occasions throughout Henry VIII's reign. And Henry always rejected him and chose somebody else. Yet as soon as Edward VI succeeded... Um, shortly after Henry Gray became a Knight of the Garter. And, you know, um, I think also Henry Gray, he he just didn't distinguish himself mm. in any capacity during Henry VIII's reign. Um, you know, we know that he accompanied the king um, to France in 1544, and he, he, he did nothing. So none of his contemporaries had a particularly high opinion of him, and I think that Henry VIII certainly recognised this. And, of course, if Francis had succeeded to the throne, Mm. then really that would have brought Henry Gray with her too. And, as I say, I really don't think Henry VIII held his abilities in any great great regard. And I can't say I blame him. No, I really really like the theory, actually. And, of course... During the story of uh, of his daughter's accession to the throne, as it were, he doesn't cover himself with glory either, does he? Really? No, not at all. He was very, very weak, uh, very naive character. Uh, he was very intelligent, actually, but I think that was probably the the only nice thing that his contemporaries had to say about him. Mm. Um, everything else, he was yeah, he was very easily led, and I think the events of fifteen fifty three certainly show that. It was certainly yeah, a desperate part of the story. Uh, and yet he and his daughter did seem to share a bond or it seemed that way to me. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do think that they had a, a, a close relationship. I think, you know, one of their contemporaries remarked upon the fact that Jane was her father's favourite daughter. And I do think that that's, that's true. I think that certainly their relationship was bonded by their shared academic interests 
And so I, I certainly think that the relationship between them was not as cold as it has sometimes been portrayed Hmm. certainly him um henry leaving his daughter in the tower was for me one of the saddest parts of the whole story yeah yeah i mean yeah that's absolutely true i do also think in many respects he didn't have an awful lot of choice but yeah absolutely i don't think i don't think he did enough to um to keep her safe i suppose you could say Hmm. and um you know um i think that his his sort of actions reflect that but um i do think ultimately he loved her but just perhaps didn't have the strength of character to um to protect her hmm. i'm delighted to hear by the way that one is allowed to have favorite children <laughs> i will tell my children that and i might nominate one of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely you could Quite in the 16th right century anyway <laughs> oh perfect down i should go back to the 16th century so um nicka what kind of person did you think jane was i thought she was a very strong person given her age she was clearly extremely intelligent exceptionally intelligent actually and um, I think that that's perhaps one of the sides of her character that's quite often neglected, mm. and you know that people forget that she was, you know, this uh, woman of extraordinary intellect who was conversing with um, with men who were, you know, a lot older than her um, abroad. So she, you know, she strikes up a correspondence in her teenage years with the uh, Protestant theologian Heinrich Bullinger, and. I think this gave her a great source of fulfilment on both a personal and an intellectual level. Um, and, you know, she wasn't afraid to to stand her ground and to say what she thought on occasion, which, again, is quite remarkable in an age in which women were wholly expected to be subservient to the, uh, the male figures in their life, whether it be their husbands or their fathers. I think she did manage to find her voice in a male-dominated world. Yes, absolutely. There was one particular point where she uh, refused to give Guildford uh, a throne or a crown or uh, to be king consort, as it were, Yeah, which must have taken remarkable uh, strength of character. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was a real shock as well to the Duke of Northumberland, her father-in-law, as well as to Guildford, actually. Mm. And um, I think... You know, until then, they had sort of assumed that she was going to be easily manipulated and very compliant with their wishes. And so for her to actually stand up and say, well, no, actually, I'm not happy to do this unless commanded to do so by Parliament, then I think, you know, that was a very brave thing for her to do. Yet, of course, she was a fiercely convinced evangelical as well, wasn't she? She very much was, yeah, and this seems to have grown throughout her life and become, you know, she be- seems to have become increasingly fervent in this faith, uh, particularly towards the end of her life. But, yeah, you certainly see evidence of this earlier in her life as well. If you do read her letters to um, Heinrich Bullinger, there are three of them that survive, and in this, you know, we, we basically have her um, many of her religious views on paper and you can see just how much religion meant to her and it really was an integral part of her life and her being 
so yes, I remember reading a biography of Thomas More, wherein the biographer talked about his historiography, and he made a comment that all his biographers came to like Thomas. So as you were going through this, did you come to like Jane? Um, I, in many respects, I came to, to like her, but I have to be honest, I don't feel that she was necessarily always the, the easiest heroine. Yeah. <laughs> I think she she was very much a typical teenager in many ways. And I think she would have been difficult to live with on occasions, certainly when her uh, stubborn streak started to come through. Um, but of course, certainly during the events of 1553 and ultimately her death in 1554, you can't help but feel um, a great deal of sympathy for her and you know, also admiration. But I would say, yeah, generally overall as a person, I had very mixed feelings towards her. Mm. And uh, what sort of sources of information do we have about her? How easy was it to get inside her head? Um, th- I mean, we are lucky in a sense that there are the sources that we have are um, are you know, very useful. For example, we've got um, the transcript of her trial from 1553, which is you know a great source of information, although it doesn't tell us a great deal about Jane and. Um, we also have ambassadors' reports, you know, where they're offering their views about her, um, and we have official documents such as, you know, there's an inventory of jewels that was delivered to Jane while she was queen in the tower. Um, but for Jane herself, we only have a handful of her letters, and these were yeah, primarily the ones that she wrote. In um, to Heinrich Bullinger um, from Bradgate Park, largely, but also um, uh, we have a couple of letters that she wrote um, whilst in the tower. So it is very difficult to try and glean glimpses of Jane, um, and you just sort of have to try and piece together what you've got and see what you see what it tells you, really. Mm. And you know, inevitably, there are with any historical subject, but especially with Jane, I think, there are gaps, frustrating gaps in the evidence. And, you know, it's, it's not always safe territory to, uh, to speculate on, uh, um, on what somebody might have been feeling or thinking at that time. Yes, yeah, very hard. I was also, as far as I could see, quite a lot of the information we have about her are from Catholic sources, who presumably yeah. have, I mean, every source, I guess, has an angle, but that must be something you'd need, you'd need to filter a little. Yeah, of course. You always have to look at where a source is coming from and why they might hold that particular view. Um, but some Catholic sources were, uh, were actually quite sympathetic towards mm. Jane, uh, which I found quite interesting. Um, but, you know, there are, there are so few sources really for for um, large periods of her life. And, you know, we don't even know exactly what Jane looked like because there are no authenticated likenesses of her. And we only have very, very small snippets of information from um, contemporaries. I think there was one Venetian contemporary who 
um, who made a, a couple of observations about her appearance. And, and really, that's it. So, mm. yeah, you, you do have to filter everything and you, you do have to consider how genuine and authentic everything is. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's just part and parcel of writing any historical biography. Yeah, I guess the the thing about Jane is she kind of transcends her youth, helps her transcend some of the normal battle lines, doesn't it, somehow? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although, I, you know, something I do think is important to remember is that although we remember her now um, as being this young, probably 17-year-old girl at the time of her death, you know, back in the 16th century, concepts and ideals of maturity were very different and 17 wouldn't have been seen as as young mm. as we sort of perceive it to be today um but i think also of course jane was a a woman and a little known woman relatively and so i think that's also helped her to to slip under the radar a little bit and you know generally mm. at that time people um, were not spending a great deal of time talking about women, let alone a young girl from Leicestershire who very few people had heard of prior to 1553. Yes, even from Leicestershire, the forgotten county, obviously. That, yeah. That, that said, with some bitterness and resentment, uh, Nicola. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there must have, but Jane must have had people obviously around her, and we've talked about a couple that she would have turned to in the crisis. Who were those people, and what sort of support do you think they gave her? I think relatively, she had she had little support, really. Mm. I mean, we know that she had her mother with her, and um, her father, and her husband, and then the lords of Edward the Sixth Council, who were um, gathered at Sion House to inform her of the death of Edward VI and the fact that she was now queen. And for my own part, I think I do believe that Jane had quite a good relationship with both her parents, including her mother. But really, at this time, there's not an awful lot that they can do for her. She has sort of been thrust into the forefront of affairs unwillingly. And I really don't think that she had... Um, she had anyone that she could really turn to for support at that time because she was really forced to go along with events whether she liked it or not. She's put in an extraordinary situation. How does she react when she's offered the, the throne? She completely broke down and, I mean, she had to deal with the fact not only that her cousin King Edward was dead but that suddenly... She had been thrust you know, from um, from third in line to the throne by the terms of Henry VIII's will to suddenly she is the queen. And she was utterly distraught. And you know, there are reports that say that she cried out that the crown is not my right. It pleases me not. The Lady Mary is the true queen. Um, and I think that really she was utterly horrified by what was before her but ultimately of course she did have the pressure of all these men um, bearing down on her and she may not have wanted the crown but I think that ultimately she um, accepted it and believed that it was God's will that she did take that crown. Mm. 
So who was it then? Who's who's responsible for this? Whose idea and plan do you think it was to put Jane on the throne and exclude Mary from the succession? And why did why did they want to exclude Mary from the succession? I think it comes down to um, I think it's a combination really of the Duke of Northumberland, um, who of course eventually becomes Jane's father-in-law, and Edward VI, and. The reason that they wanted to exclude Mary was quite simply because she was a Catholic. Um, Edward was a stringent Protestant who had spent the entirety of his reign um, tirelessly imposing religious, um, new religious policies on his subjects in an attempt to convert England to a thoroughly Protestant country. And he didn't want Mary to be given the opportunity to undo all of this which she undoubtedly would if she became Queen of England and so I think Edward realised when he was um, when it became clear that he was dying that um, Mary needed to be removed and the only way that um, you know that, that he could ensure Protestant succession really was by appointing Jane as his successor he he couldn't exclude Mary without also excluding Elizabeth his younger half-sister the younger of the half-sisters and um, even though she was a Protestant so both half-sisters are struck out of the succession on the grounds of their previous illegitimacy which had been enforced by law during the reign of Henry VIII and um, you know and Technically, the next in line to the throne then should have been Francis, Jane's hmm. mother. But we've already alluded to the fact that Henry VIII had actually cut her out. And also, she didn't really have, she wouldn't have had any support for her claim anyway. The Duke of Northumberland is the main power force in the land at this time. And he very conveniently arranges for Jean, um, sorry, Jane to be married to his fourth son, Guildford. And so, therefore, you know, Jane is the obvious candidate. And um, you know, Northumberland, what his support was essential if Jane was to succeed to the throne as Queen of England. So I think that you know, he persuaded Henry Grey and, and Francis to fall in with his plans. Um, and I don't think that they needed a great... Well, I certainly mm. don't think Henry needed a great deal of persuasion um, and so, yeah, plans plans went ahead. The debate about whether it's Edward or whether it's the Duke of Northumberland has wandered yes. around during the ages. So you came to the conclusion that it was Edward as much as anybody who defined the succession. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that Edward was um, was instrumental and a key part in it because you know, Northumberland Northumberland couldn't have done it, couldn't have machinated that alone. Edward's connivance was necessary and of course he does draw up the famous my device for the succession in his own hand and I yeah so I do very much believe that it was really uh he may not have considered Jane initially but I do ultimately think that yeah it was his decision to name her as his heir. So who then was the rebel queen in 1553? Good question. <laughs> um, um, I think it's a very difficult question to answer, actually. Yeah, you can you can see it from both sides because Edward's device for the succession was never passed through Parliament. So 
what he had done, excluding both of his half-sisters from the succession, was illegal. So technically, I suppose on those grounds, you would have to say that it was Jane who was the rebel queen. Right. Okay. So Jane is announced to be queen. What What's the reaction of the of London and the country to this proclamation? Utter amazement mm. and horror, I suppose, um, because as I mentioned earlier, nobody really knew who Jane was, and at a time when people rarely ventured very far from um, from their hometowns, you know, they had no idea who this distant this girl who'd been living in distant Leicestershire was. She wasn't a frequent presence in London in the same way as Henry VIII's daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, and neither did she have their popularity. So, you know, it's little wonder that these people in London confronted with this girl, they've got no idea who she is, and you know, they they believed that the throne was Mary's right rather than Jane's and were not happy about that right being taken away from her at all. Yeah, so they're, they're dumbfounded, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that made a difference to the, to the end result? Uh, yeah, absolutely, I think so. I think uh, it's often one of the misconceptions about Jane is that her, her reign was doomed to failure from the start but actually, precisely the opposite is true, because initially, all of the odds seemed to be stacked in Jane's favour. And even Mary's supporters were urging her to flee abroad for her own safety initially, because they believed that you know, Jane, Jane was going to be queen. Um, but I think... Mary ultimately played her trump card because she fled into East Anglia where she was a very popular landholder and from there she was able to build up a huge base of a network of support which grew daily and you know people were hearing continuously that people were going over to Mary's side which encouraged more people to follow and also I think that Jane made, well, there were two mistakes made. And the first of these was to allow the Duke of Northumberland to leave the Tower and to leave London um, at the head of Jane's forces. Um, and this was a mistake on two fronts, because first and foremost, with Northumberland away from the Tower and from London, there was no strong powerful figurehead to hold all of Jane's supporters together because as I've already mentioned Jane's father Henry Gray was very weak nobody had any respect for him and the same can also be said of Jane and you know the second mistake then was that as Northumberland began traveling into East Anglia in pursuit of Mary he was extremely unpopular there and so all of his supporters began deserting and going over to Mary's side. So it was this continuous um, continuous sort of struggle, really, where day by day, men were just flocking to Mary's banner. And yeah, ultimately, her popularity won the day. 
It's interesting. When I was a lad, the story was always that, you know, this was a, it was inevitable that Mary would become queen. The nine day queen is, it, the very title, nine day queen, suggests that Jane, there's no way that this was ever, ever going to happen. It's just a blip. Mm. And actually, that story belittles both Jane and Mary, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, it does. It absolutely does. Um, and I think, you know, I, as I said, I do think that it was very much a struggle. Nobody at the time knew exactly which way it was going to go, but it certainly did look for some time as if it was going to go in Jane's favour. Mm. So you know, it, it was a very, very uncertain time. And um, yeah, I think yeah. I think really Mary was was quite lucky. Yeah, and it's, it's a decision of some courage, isn't it, on Mary's part, who, of course, doesn't have the greatest reputation in English history. But mm. um, that decision she makes would have taken a lot of courage at the time. Yeah, that's that's so true as well. You know, she could have she could have slipped away abroad. It would have been, um, you know, it, it, it would have been possible for, for her to do that or for her to attempt to do that anyway. And so it was very brave of her, I think, to stand her ground and say, well, no, hang on a minute. Um, I this is my right and I'm going to fight for it. Mm. And you know, she did did do so very bravely. So I think, yeah, she does have to be commended for that, certainly. Another person whose reputation has wandered around over the years is the Duke of Northumberland, of course, who we, who we mentioned. Uh, so what's your view of uh, Northumberland? Good Duke, bad Duke, just a Duke? You know, how do we evaluate him? Um, I, don't, I don't view him particularly favourably. I think he was very greedy. Um, I think he was also, certainly his behaviour after his um after Jane's deposition and his capture is very cowardly um because he was uh, so he was captured by um Mary's forces and returned to London to the tower this time as a prisoner and he um you know it was condemned and found guilty of, of treason and sentenced to die and he tries desperately to avoid this death sentence, even to the extent that he offers to convert to Catholicism, you know, which is apparently the whole reason why he'd tried to prevent Mary from becoming queen in the first place. Mm. Um, so he offers to convert to Catholicism and Mary duly allows him to do this, but then executes him anyway. And Certainly, Jane um, had very few, well, had nothing good to say about her father-in-law. When she heard about his um, conversion, she was absolutely appalled. But one thing I will say about him is that he does seem to have had a very good and very happy relationship with his wife. And he does also seem to have been a, a very loving and considerate father. So, Perhaps in personal terms, he was um, he was a nicer person um, than in political terms. There are so many images uh, that stick in my head about Lady J uh, Jane's story. One of them is the report of the Duke of Northumberland in the Market Square in Cambridge, uh, laughing with the tears coming down his cheek and throwing the coins into the air. It's mm -hmm. an extraordinary image, that. Yeah, exactly. And I think by that time... He had obviously realised that the game was up and his only hope 
was to throw himself on the Queen's mercy. And I think it says a great deal about Northumberland um, as a person, actually, that he was pretty much, um, aside from a couple of others, he was pretty much the only person that Mary was unwilling to forgive um, because by this time, most of Northumberland's colleagues had gone over to Mary and had um, fled to her side to declare their unswerving loyalty and beg for her pardon. She duly gave. But Northumberland, uh, you know, there's none of that for him. And um, although he obviously tries his best to try and to try and gain that forgiveness, it's never forthcoming. Um, so it is, it's, it's, it is, it's a powerful image and it's a quite pitiful image, but um, ultimately it doesn't do anything to save him. Jane then spends several months in the Tower, which again is an extraordinary story, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think Mary had made it clear that she intended to be merciful towards Jane and spare her life. And there were even reports circulating that eventually, when things settled down, Jane would be set at her liberty. And so for Jane, I think um, I think these times, although, you know, being a prisoner in the Tower is obviously a, an awful experience, I think for her, there was some hope that this wasn't going to be the end. Um, and she she had that to, to cling to, if you like. And I think her experience of imprisonment perhaps wasn't as terrible as uh, as some of the other prisoners in the tower. So you know, we know that she was allowed access to pen and paper. And Florio, who was her... Um, Michelangelo, Michelangelo Florio, who was her Italian tutor, also tells us that she spent a great deal of her time in prayer and um, and studying the Bible as well. So I think in this time she took a great deal of consolation in in the things that she knew best and uh, that she took pleasure in in her normal everyday life, which was, of course, her books, her education and her religious faith. There's a lovely anecdote uh, from the visit of Roland Lee, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, and um, you do get, I think that's quite, even though she's obviously a prisoner at this time, I quite like that image as well. And um, it's nice to think of her socialising and being able to enjoy the company of others during those days. So, yeah, that was uh, at a time when she was at dinner with her, uh, the gentleman jailer, Nathaniel Partridge in the lieutenant's lodgings, which right. was where she was housed. It's a, it's a fascinating little clip, isn't it? A little insight into what, a bit of normality and what must have been a, an extraordinarily unnormal life. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't get many of those glimpses of Jane. So in a sense, it is nice to have that. But of course, it is also on this occasion that she learns um, of her father-in-law's conversion to catholicism and that seems to put rather a dampener on the evening (laughs) okay and then we come to the the final stage in jane's life as you say mary to her great credit had decided to be merciful to jane what changed her mind 
What changed her mind was the Wyatt Rebellion, which was staged in January 1554. And basically, this came about because shortly after Mary's accession, thoughts had turned to her marriage. And in reality, there was only one true candidate, in my view anyway. And that was Mary's cousin, Philip of Spain. But the idea of a Spanish marriage was immensely unpopular in England because, first and foremost, Philip was a Catholic and, secondly, he was a foreigner and it was greatly feared that he would embroil England in foreign wars, as indeed he did in due course. Um, And unbeknown to Mary and also unbeknown to Jane, there were those within the realm who had decided to oppose this marriage by taking up arms and the uh, this was all done under the auspices of a gentleman um from kent named sir thomas wyatt and the uh, the aims of the plot have been debated but it's sort of generally agreed now that one of the main um one of the main ideas was to prevent the spanish marriage of course but also to remove Mary the first and replace her with her half-sister Elizabeth. So none of the plan's motivations included or involved Jane in any way, but there was one big flaw, Hmm. and that was that Jane's father, Henry Gray, was one of the key conspirators. And again, his involvement, the reasons for his involvement have been debated whether in reality he really hoped to topple Mary and restore Jane or not. I mean, that's a possibility. Um, But I think he perhaps realised that there wasn't enough support. We do know that he had spoken out against the Spanish marriage. So I do think that, um, yeah, he he certainly had, um, he he certainly was greatly opposed to that. Uh, But anyway, the rebellion is a dismal failure and Wyatt and the rebels are rounded up in London and sent to the Tower. Meanwhile, Henry Gray flees to the Midlands, where he is discovered hiding and is also returned to the Tower. And that really seals Jane's fate. But at this point, it is important to highlight, actually, that even now... Mary really didn't want to put Jane to death. She was still trying to think of ways around it. But ultimately, the pressure from her counsellors um, mm. was was too great. And she eventually did give the orders for Jane's execution, all pretty much because her father had been involved in the Wyatt Rebellion. And so, yeah, the, um, the order is given that Jane is to be executed. And uh, uh, thanks, Dad, is probably what she thought when she heard, maybe. Maybe she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then she dies with, with extraordinary fortitude. Yes, yes, absolutely. She does die with extraordinary fortitude. And again, I, I think um, she dies with great dignity. But also, it's at this time of her execution that we get another glimpse of of Jane the person, I suppose, because... She um, she's very composed. She makes a speech to those who've gathered to watch her die. 
and um, she reads a psalm from her prayer book. But when she's blindfolded and everything goes black, she suddenly realised that the block was out of her reach. And it was then that she cried out desperately, what shall I do? Where is it? Hmm. And, you know, panic just suddenly hit her. And it's then that a sympathetic onlooker um, guides her hands to the block. She places down her head, you know, her composure. She's regained her composure by this point. And then moments later, it's all over. The thing I that um, the thing that affected me almost as much as that, actually, was the conversation that she has or the brief interplay she has with Dr. Feckenham. Yes. So Feckenham is Mary's personal chaplain. And he arrives at the tower after Jane has received the news, um, you know, that she the order has been given for her execution. And basically, the reason for his coming is that Mary um, has realised that although she's not able to save Jane's body, she does at least want to attempt to save her soul. And the way that she believes that she can do that is by persuading Jane to convert to the one true faith, which, of course, is, um, in Mary's view, Catholicism. And Feckenham was initially very confident of success. He really genuinely believed that he could change Jane's mind and um, you know, move her away from everything that she'd believed in her whole life. And, again, it, it, is, it was at this time that um, Jane showed her true strength of character because um, rather, I think by this time she knew that she was definitely going to die and that there was no way out of it. And, and so I think that she'd determined that if she was going to die, she was going to be seen to die as a Protestant martyr for the Protestant faith. And so she refuses um, all of Feckenham's attempts to convert her and stays true to what she believes in Mm. and yet on the scaffold there's a moment between them isn't there where she i think she embraces him and it gives just a glimpse that you know there's a there's not just a fanatic in there which of course doesn't travel well across the centuries there's a real person too as it were yeah absolutely and you know feckenham um, had said that he was going to be there during um during her final moments um and yes, she does. She does embrace him and she told him to go and that God may reward him and you know, also thanks him for his company. Um, and, you know, in perhaps something that shows shows her mm. humour at this moment, um, the report says that she she told him that during those few days, she was more bored by him than frightened by the shadow of death. It's impressive, isn't it? You're going to get your head chopped off and you've got time to crack a gag. It's not bad, (laughs) is it? Yeah, exactly. So, again, you know, I do think that 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 does give a little glimpse of Jane the person. But extraordinary that she was able to uh, make a remark like that at this moment in time. Incredible. So her story, of course, has survived so strongly over the years um in spite of the fact that some of the language she uses so like in her letter to thomas harding for example some of her language she uses is that immoderate uh, language that you get in the 16th century around religious difference somehow so what why has her story been so well preserved 
I think really it started from the moment of her death when her supporters really sort of started to revere her as being um, this Protestant martyr. And, um, you know, lots of Protestants abroad, native Protestants abroad, started writing about her and, you know, talking about how... um, how admirable she was in her uh, her academic abilities, um, but also one Protestant gentleman wrote to um, Heinrich Bullinger. I think it was about a month after Jane's death that she was remarkable because of the remarkable firmness with which, though a young girl, she surpassed men in maintaining the cause of Christ. And I think this image of Jane as this Protestant martyr just really began to take hold. And, um, you know, people began to see her more and more as this girl who'd been persecuted because of her religious faith. And so the the image of Jane as this victim and this innocent pawn was born very shortly after she died and, get you know, gathers momentum as the centuries go on, particularly in the Victorian period, actually, when we see um, Paul Delaroche's iconic The Execution of Lady Jane Grey painting. That is quite a work, isn't it? It is. It's really, it's a really, really powerful image. And it is certainly the image of Jane um, that's conjured up in most people's minds when you talk about Lady Jane Grey, which is, of course, exacerbated by the fact that there aren't any portraits of her. So, you know, this is the image of her and it's her at this most pivotal pivotal moment in her life when she's about to die it's um i'm half irritated and half awed by it and we did use it for this sort of little bit of fun we've had over the last week or so but i was tempted not to because it does very much present her as a victim and i guess she was but uh there's so much more to her than that isn't there Absolutely. And I think that's something that I that was part of the reason why I really wanted to write this book was because so often when I told people I was working on Jane, the the reaction would be, you know, that's that's so sad. It's such a sad story. Poor girl. And I really strongly felt and still do feel that that is really doing Jane and injustice because Mm. there is so much more to her than that and I think that she ultimately should be remembered as a girl who yes she did die in sad and and tragic circumstances and at a young age but she also died having achieved so much in her academic career and who knows if she had been given the opportunity to live and her life had been her own Who knows what she could have achieved with that. But I certainly think she displayed great academic promise and deserves to be remembered for that more than anything else. Absolutely. I'm going to give in to the temptation to ask you what you think England would have been like if she had won. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting you ask that because uh, a couple of years ago I wrote an imaginary article about what I think would have happened if Jane had succeeded. Yeah, and... Um, it's very interesting to to consider this, and of course it's purely speculative, but I wonder if we would have remembered her as uh, as being Bloody Jane in the yes. same way that we remember Bloody Mary, um, because I do think that, of course, uh, yeah, Mary has this reputation for burning Protestants at the stake, but I, I am 
tempted to think that Jane may have gone down the same route with mm. um, with Catholics because we know from the behaviour that she displayed that she was extremely intolerant of those who showed religious beliefs that were at odds with her own. So I do very much wonder if, um, if it would have gone that way. And I guess, you know, we can we can guess that in her personal life, she she may have gone on to have children and founded a line of kings and queens. Who knows? Um, but certainly in, in the political sense, I do wonder if if she may have ended up burning a few Catholics. Yes, I absolutely take your point. Actually, I forgot to ask you about her relationship with Guildford, of course, because I'm going to lead on and ask you, uh, I'm a trivial person, Nicola, I'm going to ask you a question about a film. So let me lead into that by asking you what we know about her relationship with Guildford. Okay. Um, I mean, unfortunately, we don't know a great deal about the relationship with Guildford. We know that Jane didn't want to marry him and... I can't say I blame her. Um, we're told, we're, we're also told actually that um, her mother, Frances, was vigorously opposed to it. And on many fronts, as I say, you really can't blame either of them because this was a girl who had been raised with an acute awareness of her royal blood and um, of her importance, I suppose. And there were high hopes for Jane. There had at one time been talk of possibly arranging a marriage between her and Edward VI but of course his early death puts puts paid to all of that and so for someone who's been raised with expectations of a grand marriage perhaps to a king and thereby you know becoming his consort the thought of a marriage to the son of a duke and not even the eldest son of a duke but the fourth son is a real come down mm. so i uh, I'm not at all surprised that she wasn't happy about this marriage. But she did go through with it. It was a very grand marriage. We've got um, a detailed accounts of, of what happened and the arrangements that were put in place. Um, but really, we don't know a great deal about their personal feelings for one another. Um, we know that certainly the accounts state that during the uh, the days of Jane's reign, Guildford behaved very petulantly towards Jane, of course, uh, specifically when he was told that she wasn't going to make him king. And uh, he wasn't happy about that at all. But then there are also reports um, that say that he asked to to see her in um, in their final days, um, but that she refused, saying that, you know, they would soon meet again in a better place. And I think um I think there probably wasn't it wasn't a true a true love match or anything like that. Perhaps she'd only tolerated him. Um but I think probably um when it became clear that you know, they were they were both going to die, I wonder if he wanted to see her because he perhaps felt some remorse mm. at some of the petulance he'd displayed towards her. Um, it's very difficult to to tell, but certainly I don't think it was um, it was the great love match that is uh, eventually played out in the film. Which leads me on nicely. So, have you seen the film? Have you, Lady Jane, seen, on the bottom? I've Karthik? seen it many times. Have you? Yeah. How many times have you seen it? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> countless times. Countless a, times. A, a lot. Yeah. So you like it then? 
Um, <laughs> well, it's I, a leading can't question, I, just, it? I can't say I dislike it because it was what drew me to it was one of the reasons that drew me to mm. Jane in the first place. I remember watching it when I was um, when I was younger. Um, I still can't watch the whole film without crying now because right. of the music. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, the music's very good, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is. And I do think that it gives, um, I do think that it gives a good sense of the times. Um, in terms of historical accuracy, of course, I don't, I don't think it's uh, particularly accurate across the board. But I, I definitely think it does a good job of conveying some of the tragedy of Jane's story. And perhaps also conveying that she wasn't always the easiest of teenagers at times. Yes, uh, she does. A, I mean, Helena Bonacarte does do a pretty good job, doesn't she, of um, uh, portraying a real person and making it come to life? Yeah, I think I think she was definitely well cast. So, uh, yeah, I think she I think she did a great job, actually. And I certainly, you know, I could I see her as Jane. I certainly believed she was Jane. So, look, I have a, another podcast called History and Technicolor, which is where we talk about history films. And yeah. in the kind of trivial way that you do with these things, we, mark, we give two marks every film once we've had our discussion. One is a score from one to ten of historical accuracy. So, Nicola, I'm going to ask you to mark the film in terms of historical accuracy, <laughs> one, one to ten. Okay, I'm going to give it... Um, I'm going to give it a Five. Five. Fair, I think harsh, but fair. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to give you ask you to score it from one to ten for its quality as a film. Oh, for its quality as a film. Okay, I'm going to be a bit more generous now and cool. say um, a seven. Seven. Sounds like a yeah. good mark. But I'll keep those marks secret from my uh, colleague on the show until afterwards, and I'll reveal it to him afterwards. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> So, uh, one more question. I understand that the experience of writing a book hasn't obviously been too awful because you've, you've written another book. What, what's your latest project about? Yes, I absolutely love writing. Um, I wrote a second book, which in some ways, to me at least, it felt like the next part of the story for some of those that were involved in Lady Jane Grey's life. It doesn't seem immediately obvious, but it's called Elizabeth's Rival, the tumultuous tale of Latisse Knowles, Countess of Leicester. Um, so that was released last autumn. And um, it's, it's basically a, a great Tudor catfight. That's how I describe right. it, because one of my reviews <laughs> described it in that way, and I thought it was great. Um, but basically about a, a woman, Latisse, who was a kinswoman of Elizabeth I, and... Um, she risked, well, she gained the Queen's enmity after daring to marry the Queen's favourite, Robert Dudley, mm. who was, of course, Guildford's, um, older, one of Guildford's older brothers. And, um, and she has to deal with, Latisse has to deal with the consequences of this marriage for the rest of her life. So... Uh, so that was released last autumn, and I'm currently working on my third book. Oh, what's that going to be then? My God, you are a glutton for punishment. I, I am a glutton for punishment. Um, <laughs> I'm not allowed to disclose oh, Okay, yet, fair enough, fair it, enough. It is another Tudor book, and it will be released next autumn. I used to be a commissioning editor for my sins in my previous life. So Fantastic. I've always been incredibly impressed with authors for the extraordinary hard work it takes to write a book. Not less all the notes indexing yeah. bibliographers nightmare you think you finished the book then you've got about another half of it to do 
I know. Sonoma. <laughs> Always comes as a shock to the system. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I'd done it. No, 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 no. Very, very good. Thank you, Nicola. That was uh, was great. Very interesting indeed. I love your book, as I say. And you're going to give it. You're going to put a free one up for a prize. I think copy of Crown of Blood. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can sign it. And oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah. yeah. Would have been slightly awkward if you'd said no there at that point. Would have been a bit awkward. It yeah. would, not it? <laughs> but fortunately, you didn't. Great. Okay. Lovely to talk to you, Nicola. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Very good. Great. Thank you. Well, how lovely was that? Thanks, Nicola, again. So, look, that is it. That is all the news. Have a thoroughly, amazingly, wonderful, lovely and just incredible new Christmas and New Year because that's what you have to say. You have to say incredible these days, don't you? But I know I shall. And thanks for listening this year. Thanks to my lovely members in particular. Bye then all, and I'll see you next year. Bye.